Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. You know, when we talk about real estate and the hot real estate market, we talk often about existing home sales, new home sales, but how about the land underneath all that real estate? Jason Walter, CEO of National Land Realty, he focuses on that. Jason, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, we're, it's just been amazing during this pandemic how strong the real estate and housing market has been. How about the land market? Uh, they're not making any more, any more land, so talk to us about the land market. Sure, yeah, that's correct. They're not making any more of it. Uh, we've experienced exceptional growth this year. Uh, through the first half of the year, our sales were up 155%. Uh, and last year, we were up 32%. So since the pandemic, uh, April uh, of 2020, since it began, we've, we've just skyrocketed. Jason, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but you could help me solve a, a bit of a debate in my relatively new marriage. My husband would love oh to buy just a ton of land down in Virginia or West Virginia and not worry about <laughs> buying a house, just hold on to the land and we can rent. I would rather save up and buy a house. Is buying land a better investment than buying a house in this market? Well, again, it all starts with land, so you can do both. Both of you can be happy. Fair enough. Uh, but, okay. <laughs> but, but to answer your question, yeah, the returns on land, um, it's a less volatile market. You know, after the last Great Recession, the timber and ag land rule, what we consider rural land, it outperformed the commercial sector for the first five years after the downturn. It's less volatile. It hedges really good against inflation. Both timber and, and ag have outperformed gold over the last several decades when it comes to inflation. So right now is just a, a really popular time to be buying land. So what kind of land? I mean, um, do I buy farmland, timber, ranch land? I mean, what kind of land is, you know, what that you're recommending people take a look at? So it's, it's a good question because most people segment them. We don't. Typically, the tracts of land we sell incorporate three main components. You're typically buying it uh, for recreational use. Could be hunting, could be camping, could be four-wheeling. Uh, but is a uh, kind of a backup to your investment. It's typically going to have some agriculture done on mm -hmm. it and timber. So you're you're kind of getting the best of all and livability. A lot of there's a, 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 a really nice wave of people that are moving into more rural areas. You know, only only 19 percent uh, of the of the U.S. population uh, lives on on a mm -hmm. uh, 97 percent of the land. Yeah, Jason, it's so interesting. I'm from the Washington, D.C. area, and every time I go home, it seems that the sprawl has gone farther <laughs> and farther out from the city. And now there's people, you know, new developments going up that are like an hour and a half commutes into Washington. Is land becoming more valuable even at farther and farther out distances from metropolitan centers? It is. The way we track land is, is what we call development zones, uh, future development zones, and then rural land. Uh, the, the the urban areas, the development area, that only consists of 3% of the U.S. land uh, mass. 97% hmm. of the U.S. land is considered rural. So it, it is creeping out in the suburbs. You know, obviously the, the builders are building a lot of new homes. 
Um, and, and so you're seeing that fringe push further and further out. And with it, it, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but with the with food being able to be delivered through the mail, with you know all the technology that's available today, educational line, it's a lot easier and, and things are more accessible to live further out. Jason, I live in the uh, the most uh, high, highly dense uh, s- state in the country in New Jersey. Where should I look in terms of other parts of the country if I wanted to add some land to my portfolio? Am I going to the south? Am I going west? Where am I going? Yeah, two things about that comment that are interesting. One, we just hired a land broker in New Jersey. There you go. Um, <laughs> I just sold so my again, house. I'm done. I'm like Elon Musk. So again, you, <laughs> very few people in the U.S. have to go more than an hour to get into a pretty rural area. But if you're looking at the entire country, you know, the Sun Belt's obviously experienced a lot of growth. Um, the southeast is really booming. Um, that's probably where most of the, the business is taking place. All right. Interesting. So, yeah, I Paul know. Sweeney, there's some ideas for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Be a rancher. Uh, <laughs> all right, Jason Walter, thanks so much for joining us. Jason Walter, CEO of National Land Realty. He is a graduate uh, of Clemson University. Enjoys watching football on his alma mater. Maybe not so much this year. A little bit of a tough year for the yeah, no Trevor Lawrence Clemson at Tigers. But anyway, it's interesting. We again when we talk about it, I don't even think about owning land. I think yeah. about owning like houses and stuff. Right. But. but- I guess to Jason's point, those things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Right. Maybe, especially in this market. I mean, we have a great story out on the Bloomberg Terminal right now about how first-time home buyers, like myself in theory, <laughs> can't get into the market right now because yeah. prices have just risen to such an extreme level. People are paying all cash. Maybe if you can't go for it and buy the whole house, you can buy a plot of land with the intention to build later. Maybe that's kind of the backwards way into it. Well, Kaylee, when I was a sell-side equity analyst, the two meetings you had to get on your West Coast marketing trip was Capital Group and TCW, both in LA. If you didn't get those uh, meetings on your schedule, my boss wouldn't even pay for the ticket. TCW is big. Brian Whelan joins us, Group Managing Director for TCW's Fixed Income Group. Um, Brian, thanks so much for, for joining us here. We've had a little bit of a pickup in yield out there. We had, you know, we kind of started the day yesterday with the, you know, the 10 year, the, the 30 year up, you know, 10 basis points. What do you make of what we're seeing in the rates market right here? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, thanks for that introduction, Paul. Um, in that, uh, you know, we, we had such kind of high employment numbers, positive employment numbers for months. We had very high, you know, inflation numbers. And then finally, once we get into September, uh, we actually have an underwhelming employment number and an, and an inflation number that comes in below expectations. And then it's only two weeks after that that the market starts to sell off. Uh, which kind of tells you the mar- the weighting on the economic numbers from the, at least on the bond market it's not what it historically is and really the bond market's saying it's more focused on you know the reopening and the pandemic and what's going on with delta et cetera and then and so what you've seen uh, is a sell off although it's it's a little different than what we saw early in the year you know we had a big sell off in the first quarter rates jumped higher yeah this time around it's being led by the short end uh, and actually you know, while the two-year and the five-year are, are kind of at their highs in terms of rates on the year, you know, the 10-year and the 30-year, the long end of the curve, is actually still about 20, 30 basis points lower than what we saw back in March. Yeah, I feel like now we're much more focused on, on the belly rather than the long end. So in this kind of environment where yields are higher than they were, but still low historically, around 1.5%, can you be a buyer of bonds? Well, I think uh, the answer to that is, what, what do you want it to be in your portfolio? I mean, you can't – look, the, the nice thing about a discussion about bonds is it's pretty much just math. 
uh, in that, you know, you're looking at, you know, yields of, of one and a half percent. Even if you move out of treasuries and you buy, you know, investment grade corporate bonds, maybe you're talking two and a quarter, two and a half percent. And even like the lowest quality bonds out there, you know, you talk about the high yield bonds, you know, brace yourself. You're talking about a four percent yield um, on that market. So there, there isn't a lot there, obviously, but at the, on the flip side, you know, it should just be part of an investor's portfolio, whether it's a, a you know, individual or, or an institution. Um, and look at one and a half percent, um, if we get a dramatic sell-off in the equity markets and, and, you know, they go down by 25, 30, 35%, more likely than not, you're going to see bonds rally. Uh, and the math would tell you that if you got, you could still get a good solid 100 basis point rally in the bond market, which would be, you know, would probably put your piece of your bond portfolio up about 7 8%. And, you know, on an absolute basis, that does not sound all that interesting. But on a relative basis, relative to what's going to happen in your equity portfolio, it could still play a role for you. Brian, talk to us about credit quality. Um, I mean, you guys see everything out there. I haven't heard much about a real credit quality issues, either from the big banks when they report earnings. Uh, is that simply because we had the Fed backstopping everything hmm. and we had fiscal stimulus every time we, 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 we turn around? Is that kind of the story? Are we, is yeah. there no real risk there? There's not enough time in your program to talk about that. Issue. But, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, to, to, to your direct question, I'd say, yeah, there's two ways to measure credit quality. Kind of observed credit quality, and by that I mean, like, how are, um, let's say, borrowers defaulting, uh, consumers, let's say, on credit cards? Like, what's the loss rate? And it's at all-time lows. Or let's say, like, in the corporate bond market, uh, even in the high-yield market, the leveraged finance market, um, let's say, look over the last 12 months, like, what's the default behavior? How often are they not paying, you know, the, the debt that comes due? Really, again, at all-time lows. I think historical trailing historical default rates is less than one percent. So, so if you if you if you want to look backwards, it's never been a better time to to kind of lend or be you know invest in the credit side of the fixed income market. But on a forward-looking basis, I can tell you that first of all, which you mentioned earlier, you're not getting paid to take a lot of risk right now in the bond market, right? Whether yeah. it's duration or whether it's credit, and then uh, kind of the implicit credit quality. That has deteriorated significantly. It is, without a doubt, a, a borrower-friendly market, meaning that whether you're a person, um, or particularly if you're a company or even a, even a country, a sovereign nation, um, the terms at which you can borrow, not just the rates, but the terms around, let's say, like the covenant quality, let's say, um, is as friendly as it's ever been. And so what that means is, you know, at some point in the future, that's going to come back to kind of bite bond investors um, for that type of lending. Um, and so the question is, obviously, it always is, is when does that trigger uh, occur uh, and, and that all that, that kind of poor credit quality come back to, to, to hurt uh, bond investors. Brian, just quickly on spreads, we're still sitting at around 285 basis points for high-yield spreads. Have we seen yep. the tights of this particular credit cycle? Is it only wider from here? Hard to say. I mean, look, you know, it, everyone is so starved for for yield and for income. I mean, that's that's really that was the objective, right? You know, of the Fed to kind of, you know, it's a, it's a repression. Um, so, you know, we hit a little early in the year at 265 basis points of spread. You know, we're at 285 today. Um, I think way, way, way back when, before the credit crisis, at one point, I think we hit about two and a quarter. Uh, that was the all-time low. So, look, if we sit in this very kind of tight monetary controlled environment where you know effectively the fed doesn't let um, yep. financial conditions deteriorate uh, and volatility to pick up and we let we, we stayed in this environment for another year sure i, I think we could breach 225 hmm. um but but that's wow. the question right you know could they actually contain it you yeah. know if let's say 
let's say the Fed blinks, you know, or, or the, right. you know, they, they're playing this game of kind of almost like chicken with inflation, right? And if, what yep. if the Fed flinches first? You know, they get into next year and they're not so confident right. in the transitory narrative and then right. they start to maybe increase interest rates yep. a little sooner than the market expects. That would be, All right. that might be a trigger. We'll pay attention to that, certainly. Brian Whelan, thanks so much for joining us. Group Managing Director for TCW's Fixed Income Group. Well, there is a lot going on down in Washington, D.C. right now from a legislative perspective. We've got infrastructure. We've got spending plans. We've got to keep the government going uh, just in terms of day-to-day -day operations. What's going on as it relates to the markets? How should we think about this? Michael Zizas, Chief U.S. Public Policy and Municipal Strategist for Morgan Stanley, a little firm here in New York City, joins us. Michael, how are you framing out in your mind as you talk to your clients about how we should think about all of the variables in Washington, D.C. from a legislative perspective. Yeah, hey, good morning. I think the more important debate at the moment is the one about overall fiscal policy. So that's the infrastructure bill and the, the reconciliation bill, kind of the expansion of the social safety net. And there's some interesting decision points this week that tell you if the Democrats are going to be able to go, go big uh, or if they're going to go small. And uh, that to us is important because I think the, the go big option, which is our base case, is probably a necessary condition for rates to continue to rise at the pace they, they've been having. Right now, we think the evidence points in the direction that they're going to be able to go big or at least keep the possibility of going big alive because the option where they go small would probably require a vote on the smaller bipartisan plan to go ahead without a commitment on that larger reconciliation plan. And, and right now, that doesn't seem like it's going to be possible because House progressives have effectively said they're going to yeah. withhold their votes on the smaller bill. Well, but Michael, the House is one thing, and, and the battle Pelosi is having to wrangle her caucus, especially the progressive ones there. But in the Senate, Joe Manchin, Kristen Cinema have said, we don't want to go big. Three and a half trillion dollars is too large a price tag. So even if the House does one thing, can going big make it through the Senate? Well, I think that you've identified the, the right tension here. It's not just about, it's not just within the House or within the Senate. It's actually across both chambers. And in many ways, the groups that need to come to an agreement are the House progressives and the Senate moderates within the Democratic Party. And until there is some type of agreement, and, and at this point, you know, to, to quote uh, Speaker Pelosi herself, it's self-evident that a big deal won't be as big as the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. But somewhere south of that, if House progressives and Senate moderates can agree on something like that, you could see forward progress on the smaller bill this week. But that doesn't seem to be – there's no evidence so far that that agreement is forthcoming. And therefore, there's probably still a fair amount of negotiation that has to happen. And we think this will easily slip into the fourth quarter and continue as a debate. Michael, as you talk to your institutional investor clients, did they get a sense of, or did you get a sense of, eh, this is just kind of how the sausage is made, it's business as usual? Or do you sense from your clients that they're saying, boy, this is problematic here. We can't even agree on infrastructure here. Is there concern out there? Um, I, I think if you're asking about is there kind of an existential concern about whether or not government is functioning, I, I don't think that's the way most investors are, are thinking about it. They're thinking about whether or not this specific, this specific set of decisions can happen, what is going to be the impact to uh, the debt and the deficit, and how is it going to play out. And in that sense, this type of 
disagreement, slow movement on what would be a very substantially sized bill um, is a little bit of business as usual. And frankly, I think if it were to completely collapse and fail, that wouldn't also be that surprising to many investors because uh, it is, I'd say, generally the default assumption that that D.C. doesn't get things done as opposed to getting big transformational things done. All right. It would be great if this were the only conversation that is having to happen on Capitol Hill, but that is not the case. We have (laughs) the potential government shutdown coming at the end of the week if a continuing resolution isn't passed. They've separated out raising the debt ceiling from that since Republicans voted it down. How is the debt ceiling going to get raised by that October 18th deadline that Janet Yellen said, hey, we're going to run out of money? Yeah, I mean, here I just highlight that there's a lot of paths that lead to the debt ceiling being raised. Uh, the, the most obvious one that, that's pretty well talked about at this point is that the Democrats decide to pivot to using the budget reconciliation process, move quickly on that process, and get that done with a party-line vote ahead of the October 18th deadline. Um, it's, of course, also possible that the option to use reconciliation expires over time if you don't move fast enough. Uh, sort of forcing uh, Republicans into the negotiation. Uh, but the point is that there, there's there's time and there's options. And so the fact that you – we're not hearing from a lot of clients who are terribly worried about this, and I think it is probably a, a bit um, early to be too concerned about it. Michael, you're also the municipal strategist at Morgan Stanley. What is your strategy for municipals right here, given all that's going on down in Washington? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it depends on what type of investor you are. Um, if you are an investor in a high tax bracket and you have a need for owning duration, then it probably still makes sense to own municipals at the moment because credit quality is actually quite good. It's improving uh, largely across the board. And on a tax-adjusted basis, there's necessarily a, uh, a better place to get that duration. Um, if you are someone who is managing against a broader fixed income index and, and you want munis because you think they'll outperform corporates or something else, we wouldn't agree with that strategy. We think munis are probably going to be an average, perhaps a slight underperformer versus other types of uh, U.S. dollar-denominated credit. All right, Michael, thanks so much uh, for joining us. We really appreciate getting your perspective here as we try to make sense of what's going on down in Washington in terms of all those pieces of legislation that are winding their way through Congress. Michael Zizas, Chief U.S. Public Policy and Municipal Strategist for Morgan Stanley based uh, in New York City. This is Bloomberg. Well, when enhanced unemployment benefits in the U.S. ended earlier this month, many businesses thought that uh, job seekers would flood back into the labor market, but so far that hasn't happened. So what are businesses to do? Maybe one solution might be automation or enhanced automation. Uh, William Studebaker joins us. He's president and chief investment officer of RoboGlobal. They have about $4 billion in assets under mass management across various indices. Bill, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about, I don't know, automation, robots. Is that kind of the future for a lot of businesses that might post-pandemic have a hard time, you know, finding uh, job uh, folks to fill their job openings? Yeah, good morning, uh, Paul and Kayla. Yeah, listen, I mean, fortunately, as I discussed in my blog, the the robots are here. And um, the obvious solution right now, you know, is is automation. And the trajectory of of automation is definitely undeniable. And what's exciting about what's happening now is that 
this revolution is very different in terms of scope, scale, and complexity of any other technological revolutions that we've seen. It is really coming down to really dollars and cents. And the competitive advantage that the service industry had had was access to cheap labor, and automated systems have had to compete against this. Um, Historically, the upfront capital costs um, made robots less competitive. But, you know, with astronomical wage increases, particularly in lower-wage labor, in the absence of labor in many cases, um, the service industry wage increases um, have really changed this equation. So we're at a tipping point as we have wage costs that have accelerated. You have costs of automation that have plummeted, and quality is is obviously improved as a result of automation. This is really giving birth to um, a whole new evolution to our economy and how business is done. Yeah, it's interesting. I was reading a note, uh, a story about a note from Mike Mayo, who's a bank analyst over at Wells Fargo, very closely followed. And he said that the banking industry, the financial industry would be maybe cutting 100,000 jobs over the next five years, in part due to improvement in technology and automation. Is finance or any other industries, sectors in particular that could see this happening in a more accelerated way? Well, I, I think that's a hard question to ask. I think every industry is actually, you know, ripe for automation. There isn't, you know, when you, when you think about um, automation in general and, you know, how much or how penetrated are are we in terms of automation, with the exception of of, uh, of industrial robotics, principally auto, which is about 40% penetrated, virtually every other industry has de minimis levels of penetration. Really, um, I would argue what's happening is not so much um, job loss, but what's happening is the nature of work is changing. And in many cases, really what we're doing is automating tasks. So it's not about about complete job functions getting eliminated. But again, tasks are changing. We're moving more to uh, a knowledge-based work environment. Um, you know, think back to the 1900s. We had 60% of our workforce that was in ag. Now we have 2%. We're producing more with less this is all as a result of automation. So, again, I think we're at a tipping point for productivity to improve in virtually every industry. Is that, how do you, when you look at the labor situation today, you know, we've got, uh, again, the enhanced unemployment benefits uh, expired earlier in September. Um, we haven't necessarily seen a rush back into the labor market. What, what do you make of kind of the folks that are not participating in this labor market now? Well, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, you know, the interesting thing that we've had in, in the economy, to put what's happened in perspective, it's actually kind of interesting. Um, in the second quarter of 2021, you know, we had the highest GDP growth in history. In fact, GDP growth is now 1% higher than the prior peak, and we're producing the highest output with 6.7 million fewer people. And this is all as a result of automation. And you know, the initial um, unemployment claims that came out were a little more elevated than I think expectations um, had it. Um, you know, demand for workers remains elevated as, as the economy reopens. So I think the, the big issue for a lot of companies and is that with the reopening of the economy, the main issue is has been finding enough workers to meet the soaring demand. And I think going forward, mm-hmm. um, a lot of companies are going to face a lot of pressures with rising costs. And I think people have had the benefit of, of having enhanced benefits, and, yeah. and they recognize that. And I think that's made them very slow to you know make future changes. Bill, just quickly, we only have about a minute left, but if we're heading toward a more robotic, automated world, how do you position a portfolio for that? 
Well, I think this is undeniably, you know, where we're going. When we sort of had the vision that robotics and AI were going to become very ubiquitous eight years ago, you know, fast forward, you know, eight years later, we could be more convicted. I think what's interesting is I think most people sort of see this, but they're not positioned for it. If take, for example, our our robotics index, which has an ETF that tracks at Robo, uh, less than 3% of these companies are in the S&P 500. So generally speaking, this is a very unowned part of the market for, for most investors. And what we try to do is identify companies that have high revenue purity, that have market share and technological leadership. So these are really our very mature businesses. And again, importantly, not owned by investors. And I yep. think if you look at the S&P, 52% of the S&P didn't exist roughly 12 years ago. Wow. So the evolution, the innovation that's happening is happening pretty rapidly. And this is where right. you know, we're going. And um, this is just in line with what's happened you know, with the internet yep. and probably a lot more powerful. Hey, Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate getting your thoughts here. Fascinating topic. Bill Studebaker, President and Chief Investment Officer for Robo Global. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.